doing the edits last week, I could hear the uh, extent to which you needed to be done with this Pro Tools class. <laughs> <laughs> was, I, was that bleeding through? I, I, I hope that it, it ended positively for you and that you feel like it was all worth it. How about this? I turned in my final project. It's usually done at, due at midnight on Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. And normally I'm turning it in like two or three in the morning because that's how long it takes. Right, right. I turned this one in at nine. <laughs> you are ready to be done. <laughs> I was on it. No, and listening back to it, like, you know, always, 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 I would go back to projects the next morning and go, okay, that's pretty good. Or, oh, this is garbage. I went back and I listened to the final project and I thought, you were proud that's, of it. That is tight. You are proud of it. I was. Well, I'm happy for you. Thank and, you, man. And I'm, and I'm glad that you have some more digital audio workspace tools under your belt. I certainly do. You're going to you're, you're gonna help us get that get that Emmy that they won't give us, that we deserve. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Opus 154 of the Triloquy Podcast. So last week, right after we got done recording, right after I've spent all of my time in the second movement talk about Drake and, oh my gosh, is dance music coming back, Beyonce puts out her mm-hmm. own dance track. I texted to you to uh, listen and, and make sure you heard it. We won't play it here, but listening to it had to have reminded you of a certain time in your life. I was, it did. I was uh, but a wee lad in the early '90s <laughs> yeah. when that sort of music was, you know, all over the dance clubs and and that sort of thing. But it had to have taken you back listening to that type of electronic meeting piano meeting the the boom baps or or, sure. or or whatever um that sort of sound would have been right as i was ending my career as a mobile dj so mm-hmm. that whole vibe was very present at the wedding receptions after about 10 o'clock you know after right after you know, people have had a few few r- things to drink and everyone's feeling a little you know sure <laughs> and you know you also play a little you know you want to warm people up you know you might throw some big band or 50s 60s out there first you know for the parents to get out and shake a leg but yeah by the time 10 o'clock rolled around we were into current hits so yeah. in exploring the things that sound like this new Beyonce composition. Again, some of that music from the late 80s, early 90s, we were going through to see what it reminded you most of. And we ended up here. Just by the hat, mm. hi hat, you can tell something is coming. <laughs> Pump it up while your feet are stumping And the jam is pumping Look ahead, the crowd is jumping Pump it up a little more Get the party going on the dance floor See, cause that's where the party's at And you find out if you do that Give me, give me Paint, paint the picture, go ahead Okay, it's a Friday night And the football game just got over with And we're in the gymnasium of my high school Having the after party Um I do remember one dance specifically where I had actually figured out how to do the running man. (laughs) And a popular girl walked by and she said, you do that really well. And I ran five to 10 miles that night. Shout out to Tektronic there with that 
Technotronic. Technotronic with that classic American composition. Pump up the jam. I wasn't there in the in the gymnasium, but you know, the basketball games or the the whatever mm-hmm. you think about, you know, that that kind of gets people doing exactly what the song is asking people to do. Get your booty on the dance floor, yeah. at least on your feet. It makes me think about the role and the importance of dance music, not only in our contemporary sort of context, but over the the course of history, even in the Western classical repertoire. So when we think about some of the most famous compositions, you know, that anyone, even if they don't know it by name, they will be able to recognize it by ear. I think we're talking about dance music, including this track here. Let's just let, let's just keep it real. This is such a effing snooze <laughs> compared to what we just got done listening to. But it is dance music indeed. The famous minuet by Baccarini. This tune has to every now and again. Come across one of your playlists mm-hmm. as a what, news window. Yeah. What What is the story that you tell? How do you <laughs> How do you add some seasoning to that in 2022 after all of these years? I have never. <laughs> You're just like, listen. No, I is, go. This, here's Baccarini. Yeah, and there. End of story. Right. <laughs> now, to me, it's fine. I mean, I it, no, it's not exciting, but it's but it pl- is very famous, right, right, and all that. But you know, but now it kind of. It kind of sounds like your aunt's basement smells, you know, just <laughs> sort of musty, you know, and you can go there, you know, it's, it's, it's not painful or anything. It's just, it's not what you really want to do. Well, how, well how, how about we fast forward a little bit, you know, uh, among the other very famous classical, so-called classical dance tune is uh, this one by old Lenny Bernstein. Mm. Still got the hi hat, right? Mm-hmm. That's still going in there. You know, the string players can get up and get all excited about Mambo because for the wind players, it's we have to take the breath. See, we have to we have to take that good air breath. Yeah. It's always interesting for me to think about, you know, the point is <laughs> that I'm trying to make here dance music, music that moves people has always moved people. And when we think about our programming uh, on the on the orchestral stages, on radio, chamber music, we have to think about that, not that everything necessarily has to be some sort of dance music, but in the Western classical arts, you can make a case for the uh, the staying power of dance music, whether it's those old cobwebby min- minuets that everyone still recognizes. Mm-hmm. There's Mambo by Leonard Bernstein. Um, 
and and everything in between you know just side note <laughs> i can't help that was the um simon boulevard youth uh, orchestra with dudamel playing that by the way it's so interesting that someone a white man from the united states can take a dance style from that part of the world write his own version of it and now that's what they're playing down there in their part of the world. Mm. Not one of their own composers. Hmm. It seems like they need to listen to this show called Triloquy, talking about decolonizing. You don't think that they play their own composers too? Come on. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not taking them all all around the on world tour. in, okay, in, okay. in the same right, way that right, they're right. taking that. Okay, anyway, I see what you're saying. The, the music has to move people, mm -hmm. as do the conversations surrounding the music that you want to move people. Let's get started. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 154. Thank you, everyone, for returning to returning listeners. Thank you so much for your continued support and keeping us on the map as one of the most vital podcasts and on the topic of decolonizing classical music. Sorry, dinner was extra good tonight, so it's, <laughs> I might have to take a cup. Let me open this soda now before I... My, my sugar-free vanilla Coke. Thank you, everyone, for returning. To new listeners, the Triloquy Podcast is a show that takes the phrase classical music and broadens its scope. We take pieces of music, we take conversation, some of which uh, that has been traditionally approximated to the idea of classical music, some not, and we throw it all into the pot toward decolonizing classical music and forming an American perspective and context of that phrase that is more expansive and more inclusive. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, feel free to visit Triloquy.org. You can check out past opuses and you can donate to the Triloquy podcast. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by Springboard for the Arts. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send a special shout out to the Seattle Symphony. I did some workshops for them, Scott, with their musicians. We talked about um, equity. We talked about challenging the idea of of classical music. I asked the members, uh, what are examples of pieces of music? So when we talk about diversifying playlists and programming, when we talk about what we add, we have to talk about what we take away, right? right. Should I publicly say what musicians of the Seattle Symphony wanted to take away? There was definitely a consensus when it comes to one of the uh, canonized composers. Mm -hmm. I won't put their business out there. Um, but I'll just say he's some of y'all's faves. So the, the, the natives are getting restless, as it was once said. The musicians are tired as well. And I'm working to empower them mm -hmm. to speak up and stand up to get these pushes done from the inside. So shout out to everyone at the Seattle Symphony, especially Eric over in their clarinet section who uh, helped facilitate all of the talks. Eric, by the way, uh, was my friend who I was talking about who went to the Orville Peck show. Oh, so, okay. he, so he's seen the you know the, the, real the, deal the gay Holyfield. country in real life. I live. <laughs> anyway, shout out to um, uh, Curtis Stewart and Janita Norpoth, the guests for this week's third movement. They're from the Public Quartet, and we talk a little bit about their new album, What is American? In the final movement, we're going to talk about the government, just as everyone else is, I'm sure, this week. But for now, let's go ahead and jump into movement one. You got a natural for us this week. I Say do. more. Well... 
as you know, you just alluded to the fact that my uh, Pro Tools class was done, and uh, it offered me a little bit more time to spend with the article that I'm bringing in today. Mm. And uh, I'm looking at sfcv.org, and an interesting story came across about a woman who's doing a project to recover women's music from the Great Migration. So for those people who don't know, there was uh, a period of time where I think it's seven to eight million people are mm. estimated, uh, black people are estimated to have left Southern states in favor of the Northwest, the upper Midwest, you know, Chicago, and then New yeah. York and that. Yeah. And the story that she is unfolding here is uh, about just a link to a heritage that she just completely did not know about as a singer yeah. and her connection to it, which was um, the black music seen in new orleans before her family moved out during this migration mm -hmm. and i started to think about the idea of how horrible horrible it would be for musical forms to be completely lost due to that sort of disconnect and yeah. that dislocation yeah but also what that got me thinking about was what are, are are we in danger right now of losing music due to the steps that are being taken by our Supreme Court? Do we look that far over the horizon and say, are artists one of these days going to be in line like Stalinist Russia mm -hmm. and have their content muted or completely censored to the point that we lose those threads? Yeah. With yeah. those, with that sources, with that source of music, that heritage. What about people who are, um, you know, the the their their parents are first generation immigrants, you know, and and they lose contact with that part of their history and heritage. I think that that is something concerning to think about. I think that we need to be aware of it and have our guard up for it. Don't you think? Are we are we close to having like a China style lockdown? Do you think? Hmm. Let me circle back around to that. I want to. I want to get to that. Uh, but before we engage that conversation, I'm just. I'm just going to offer a little bit from this article at the beginning. Here it says, "Growing up in Oakland in the late 1950s, Michelle Jacques didn't know anything about her mother's past in New Orleans. Not about the racism that her mom encountered day to day in Louisiana. Not about the financial prohibitions that prevented her mom from buying a house in the state. And not about the reasons her mother decided to leave the American South for Oakland in 19." There's a quote here. I didn't know anything about this, said Jacques, who's now an established singer. That information was hidden from me. That generation, they didn't want to dwell on stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There is a, a very important conversation that needs to be, hap uh, needs to be had around that concept uh, in general. When we talk about these music history classes that you take in, in college, of course, you know, when I was coming up, it focused exclusively on Western Europe. As I hope that folks are expanding what that looks like uh, and, and what a music history curriculum should include. I think you have to, A, especially in, in an American context, talk about the Negro spiritual and mm -hmm. Harry Thacker Belay and all of that, but talk about why it's significant 
that that composer was so dedicated to preserving the spiritual, he was dealing with the same thing. A lot of those folks didn't want to sing the work songs or didn't want to return to the spirituals. It was too close because, to the surface. Right. That, that, that was a remnant of the past. So we almost lost that. So, you know, but, but, but again, before we get into what you were speaking to, I just have to, you know, honor Michelle Jacques for that reason, because it's so easy for this history to be lost forever, even just by getting cut off from uh, one generation. It makes me think about, here we go, getting into the politics. You know, when you think about uh, states like Texas and other places in the South where they're rewriting the textbooks and using phrases like indentured servants instead of workers, um, workers instead of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Is that not the same thing? And is that not the same thing on an intentional level? You mean Block, eugenics? Blo- blocking, blocking off that history and the power being in understanding that history. So, you know, when you talk about when you're approximating this subject to what's going on in the government and and everything, I think it's just, you know, so important to understand the the recurring nature of some of these ideas, especially, excuse me, as it relates to our role in it. We have to play a role in making sure that this history is preserved, that the stories are preserved, that the dialogues and conversations are preserved, because there's danger in not doing that. There's danger in forgetting the past. And as we have been seeing with the government, yes, the the arm can come down to erase the history, and it, in essence, erases the present in many ways, certainly how how we you know act and move about in the present if we don't have that historical narrative and that historical context to lean on. So again, when when you're asking that question, you know, should we be at this point with the Roe v. Wade thing last week, should we be worried about how far that stretches out? Mm-hmm. I think we're there. We 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 have evidence, you know, of and maybe not necessarily purely in music, but we have evidence of the powers that be really trying to rewrite the narrative based on history in that way, you know, c- cutting off that line of understanding. Go, you know, fast forward back to what the Daughters of the Confederacy, how they played a big role in school curriculums, which, you know, has resulted in folks now not even understanding what the Civil War was mm-hmm. or what the history of racism in this country was, what the, what the, pre- what the, active situation of it is today anyway all, all, all of that rambling to say i think we're there when you're talking about um censor government censorship and those things we're we're seeing it happen at play when it comes to historical narratives i think the problem is what would actually get arts institutions and individuals and arts institutions uh dealt with in that way Folks are conditioned enough and are obedient enough to not even brush against those things. Right. But another, okay, so another thing that Michelle Jacques points out in this article is that she can only work on like maybe five or six of these artists trying to rebuild, you know, they're trying to find the music and get the catalog right, mm-hmm. you know, and, and preserve it, archive yeah. it. So she's she's indicating that there there is more out there to be archived and and revitalized right right right. and not enough people are taking up that challenge so there there's another way that it's lost is just through attrition right right now to deal with the idea the idea that we're we're seeing it today my concern is what the next step is after that i'm and, and i and i don't mean to be chicken little here but i'm talking about jails or work camps, 
or assassinations over the the art that people create or Malcolm X style um, elocutions mm. that are given. Tell me I'm wrong. Again, the reason why I feel like personally that is not really a conversation to think about, at least one that I don't think about, is because we are in this position where phrases like classical music <laughs> are so colonized in people's mind that the concept really even rising up against the status quo seems radical, much less doing so to the extent mm -hmm. to get you put in jail or, mm -hmm. or, or get you, you know, get, get your art censored in that way as it has existed in other countries. I guess I'm thinking about the movie, maybe it was called Dark City or something like that, sure. where, you know, they're trying to explain this bad thing that uh, can happen, but it has already happened in, 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 uh, in, in actuality. That's what I think we're dealing with right now. Because of capitalism, because of systemic racism, because of all of these things, everyone is trained to behave, especially in, in, in the arts. You know, I was talking with a, a composer when I was in New York uh, with American Composers Orchestra, who uh, basically was, was talking about how every conversation in the arts, especially in orchestral music, is like a job interview. Everyone's being so safe and there, there's no uh, mm -hmm. provocative dialogue mm -hmm. ever happening. You know, that was one of the inspirations for Triloquy mm -hmm. to actually put that into the, the ecosystem. So again, I, I feel like I'm, I always feel like I'm repeating myself on this show, but what it boils down to in my perspective is the fact that folks in the arts, because of the highly competitive nature, because of the capitalism that's involved there, the systemic racism, all of the patriarchy, all of these other things that I can name, the conditioning is strong and the, and the conditioning is at play. People won't step out. I mean, and some will. I'm, I won't make any blanket statements, but for the most part, I don't think it's something for us to worry about that level of government interaction and interference in the arts because folks are too well trained to do anything that would even lead us to that. Wow. Okay. So then the last question, how do we get people to wake up from the matrix and <laughs> from the dark city and, and realize that? Well, I think it's perspective. I think it boils down to perspective. I put myself in a lot of interesting positions in, in, in my work and in my life. But it's because there are certain things that I just can't stand on the sidelines and watch happen in, in the arts. Mm -hmm. that, that's why my, my life has been turned the way it is. You know, I can't be neutral. I, I can't not involve myself. So I think, you know, if I can do, and, and folks who engage in this work as well, if we can do everything we can to just share the perspective, the why mm -hmm. behind the activism, the why behind the conversation, maybe there can be something there. That perspective, you know, has to include conversations on uh, freedom from capitalism, because if the organizations that give us money, if if we accept the fact that money is all they got at the end of the day, and if that's something that we don't have to operate under, what would that mean for those institutions? We have to properly contextualize racism's impact on the industry all the way down again, the point of this show, to that phrase, classical music. There is an agenda at play when we use that phrase and we center it in on Western Europe. I mean, there was certainly agenda at play when that culture came over here to the United States, you know, mm -hmm. the culture that we did not create and that is, you know, not ours. We, we ignore our classical music to accept someone else's, mm -hmm. you know, the, the racism and the violence in that. Using the word violence 
itself sounds radical to some people in that regard, but it does not sound radical to me. For me, it's it's where we are. Um, I think the other thing to consider is that, you know, you talk about the jails and and when are, you know, people, arts activists, you know, when will we get to the point to where folks will make an example out of them? Well, they don't have to. The, the industry doesn't have to. The government doesn't have to because up until recently and, and to an extent still today, I feel like the punishment is no you get your you keep your black ass and your music out there you know mm-hmm. that that the, mm-hmm. the excommunication the 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 so-called canceling all of that all of those structures that keep those orchestral and opera institutions the way they are that is the new way of of doing all of those things those punishments people have dedicated people of color black folks have dedicated their life to this art form you know we can't engage or they can't engage because of the the status quo that set up the barriers that are set up in x y and z i feel like i'm (laughs) going on but no go off that's just kind of kind of how i see it that that is I think is a very provocative question you raise in conjunction with the preservation of history and the role of the government and and all of those things. I think we need to break free of that conditioning before we can even have the conversation of how the government will react to arts activism. Right. We more of us need to stand up. Like I'm more saying, of us need to be radical. Sure, like I'm saying, uh, I'm not trying to be chicken little, but I think everything is on the table at this point. Mm. Every concern is is valid and in play at this point so that's where my head went check out uh the uh article on michelle on michelle jacques at sfcv.org among the pieces of archive back up your shit take pictures back up your stuff physical archives shout out to davu seru who was way back in season one of triloquy i I, uh, looked at one of his panels maybe about six months ago and he was talking about the importance of physical archiving. One of the questions I uh, asked him during the question and answer, I was like, well, at one point, are we just going to lose history Mm -hmm. because everything is digital? You know, when the bomb drops or whatever, and they're coming back after a thousand years, there will be this blank spot of no records because everything is digital. And his response basically was, it's up to us to make sure that's not the case. So do what you can, learn about your history, pass on the history. You know, I have to shout out my mom who has done extensive work on our family tree. And because of the history of slavery, there are those dark spots, you know, where we will just never know who came. And it's, I don't know, it almost wants to choke me up thinking about that. But, you know, all of those things considered, just do what you can to ground yourself in your history, to know our history, to understand the history of music in America so that we can't, continue to be conditioned by these white supremacists and these white centric definitions of of classical music do that work anyway among the uh, pieces of music that michelle jacques features in her project um is a uh is music by a woman named blue lou barker i know how you are with the roots and all of that stuff did did you know that name blue lou barker i Mm -hmm. I didn't either so I'm, i'm learning here yeah and this is um like she points out this is uh, what she was able to do, <laughs> you know, because there's so much. So if you think about Blue Lou Barker just having some new life breathed into, you know, her music and having it uh, be archived like this, yeah. there's probably at least half a dozen others that were in her immediate vicinity who were on the same level mm-hmm. and doing the same thing, mm-hmm. and we'll know, and we won't know. And we have that conversation, <laughs> just not where we should have it. If I 
could tell if I had a dollar for every time I was in a music history class you have and one of the of dollars. and and the one of the teachers was like, "Oh, just imagine all of the Bach four-part motets that he probably just threw away and da da da." And I'm sitting there in the classroom like, "I don't give a damn about none of that, okay? Is it 12:15 yet? I'm hungry. It's lunchtime." <laughs> um anyway, <laughs> but you know, I, I agree with you. All these folks whose names we we will never know. So I'm always grateful to learn more names. Blue Lou Barker um among um all of that you know, the New Orleans style music that she put out there, the most famous of them is a tune called Don't You Make Me High? Or some people know the song is Don't You Feel My Leg? That's even the more, Ooh. you know, you you know what's happening in that room anyway. Mm. So here's a recording of that. It comes from 1938, Blue Lou Barker singing Don't You Make Me High to get us into our next accidental. Don't you feel my leg. Don't you feel my leg. Cause if you feel my leg, you wanna feel my thigh And if you feel my thigh You wanna go up high So don't you feel my leg Don't you buy no ride Don't you buy no ride Cause if you buy some ride You gonna make me high And if you make me high You gonna tell a lie so don't you make me hide. She on that cussing. <laughs> <laughs> we like to we like to think of all of this like highly sexualized music and stuff as all oh, you youngsters or oh, we were so modest in our day. She said anyway, y'all heard what she said. Yeah. <laughs> I was also, though, listening, in addition to listening to those lyrics, I was listening to the clarinet. You know, we, we, we have so many traditions that you can get, you can have a master's degree, maybe a doctorate in music in the United States and not be familiar with this tradition of music, this tradition of music that is uniquely American, the stories that are, that are connected to it. You know, you really have to take your hat off to women like Michelle Jacques because they're not teaching it in the music schools. It's true. So, I mean, damn, it's true. somebody got to teach it. Yeah. And she's preserving it. So, I mean, shout out to her. That's so important. That'll be linked in the uh, description. All right. Well, I have an accidental this week. I'm going to have to pass a flat over here to the opera industry. I'm reading here from the New York Times. The headline is Opera's Lack of Diversity Extends to Offstage a Study Shows. Here's a little bit from it. It says opera has long grappled with a lack of racial diversity. Black, Latino and Asian singers have struggled to be cast in principal roles. Works by composers of color have rarely been performed. And according to a study released on Thursday, there's also a striking dearth of minorities behind the scenes in the ranks of opera administration. The study by Opera America, a service organization for opera companies, found that only about a fifth of employees and board members at opera companies in the United States and Canada identify as people of color compared with 39% of the general population. Mm. What are your knee-jerk reactions to that? He didn't say, the writer did not say black. The writer did not, you know, specify any specific uh, community in that statistic. He said that one in five is any kind of person of color mm -hmm. in the United States and in Canada. So what are, what are we supposed to do with that? Like, it's obvious in the lay of the land. You know, look at the material. It's mm -hmm. obviously in the lay of the land that there are conversations that are not happening in most rooms. To be honest, one in five was higher than I thought it would be. I didn't have a, I didn't have a figure in mind. But when I read that one, I didn't blink. 
I'm I it wasn't shocking. Yeah, yeah. One, one it one, tracks. But one thing, one just I don't know. Seemingly, maybe some people will call it a semantic thing that I'll uh, call out here. You know, and a lot of my behind the scenes work. This one issue of that word identity or the phrase identify as. I've, I think we have to tweak. I think when organizations uh, talk about, you know, X percent identify as whatever, the point they're trying to make is that they have utilized self-identification in their demographic data getting, whatever whatever phrase that is. So instead of saying, oh, I see these people, two of them are black, they do polls where everyone you know, does their own self-identification so that the information is as accurate as possible. I feel like that's why the language is put in there. Like it says here, only about a fifth of employees and board members at opera companies identify as people of color. What we have to flip is making sure that we use that word identity as it applies to uh, the way the data is gathered and not who these people are. I don't identify as black. You don't identify as a man. That's just what you are. Through self-identification, it can be determined that this podcast is hosted by two men or or 50% black hosts or whatever. So, I mean, did, is that point clear? If it's, I'm clear, if yeah, it's I'm, clear for you, I just, uh, just want to make sure it's clear for the people. I'm just paying so, attention. So, so as you're, you know, putting together your data and making your reports, keep that in mind. You know, I, I and I think about it really, you know, specifically when it comes to trans people, we we don't need to use phrases like such and such identifies as a man or identifies as a woman. They are that. Mm. They can that can be determined through self-identification data. We just have to make sure that we're very clear about how we word that. You know, so just again, that little dust in the corners. But uh but back to, you know, what is being discovered here. I have to say, in my work with the Black Opera Alliance, and the extensive painstaking work that we did in doing our own research-based project on the lay of the land. Of course, we found the same thing, um, but it seems like you know you need the grown-ups to say it before people pay attention, or of course, or, or dare I say the the the, prom- the predominantly white organizations. Mm-hmm. It's not like this issue of a lack of diversity has been, you know, new. It's not like any of us have just heard of this concept. Do you think for 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 what it's worth, one way or another, is Opera America the company that is the umbrella over all of these opera companies? Will will that make the difference? Will New York Times posting their results be the thing for people? Maybe. And maybe not. I'm. I'm hope. I'm. I would hold out hope that yes, that 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 would be the the beginning. I'm not saying. I'm not saying any big log jam breaking, but the pinhole in the dike. You know that that starts leaking. One of the people interviewed in this article was Wayne S. Brown. He's a chair of the Opera America board, and he's quoted here as saying, it's a time of awakening. We have to ask ourselves, are we reflecting who we are? Is this the image that we choose to project? So, you know, how many how many awakenings are we going to have? Because it takes me just a second to go to the New York Times two years ago, back in 2020, and find the headline, Opera can no longer ignore its race problems. Well, I guess did they ignore it for the past two years, mm-hmm. and now this day, Data tells a different story. Mm-hmm. You can also find uh, the um, 
the a, a list of participating opera companies in this data where they're finding that one in five are people of color across the board on stage and uh, elsewhere. And it's broken down by budget. So you have folks here like the Dallas Opera, Opera Philadelphia, Seattle Opera, you know, in this uh, in this top tier uh budget category with over one uh with over 15 million dollars that they use I, I imagine that's an annual budget you know 15 million dollars and y'all can't find nobody black y'all can't find you know nobody asian a member of the latina community how much money do these organizations need to actually reflect america and the talent and the and and the lay of the land here it's one thing you know that, that we've uh uh and by we, I mean the Black Opera Lines have collaborated with a lot of smaller opera companies, you know, opera companies with two people on on full time staff, right. you know. So, you know, we can have that conversation and how equity for those folks is more of a challenge, not something that should be overlooked or ignored, but more of a challenge. There's that conversation. But when we're talking about organizations that big, something's got to give. Something's got to give, Scott. I read an article recently that was pretty pointed at. PWIs, predominantly white organizations, that said, if you are trying to hire people of color and you're finding it difficult, look within the building to the see. The call is coming from inside the house. Right. So <laughs> they, you, you have to start, there's no shame in, have, in, in starting to ask yourself, why does a person of color not want to take this job that is the key if that you, is the key and and if i mean and i'm let's let's take the benefits and the salary and all that away from it you can say yeah we're we're offering half a million a year to come and work mm -hmm. for this company and yet no no person of color will take it so that that was look that was the conversation in many of these dialogues uh uh led by and uh, that the black opera alliance is involved in you know the the thing is well where are the black talent we didn't have any black people apply for our young artist program we need more people asking that very question that you asked why aren't they applying you know i think about and ask themselves in the meeting rooms in the corner offices ask yourself uh uh <laughs> it, it, it was something that I was experiencing personally, you know, last month and, you know, earlier this year when I was going through the interview process for, you know, this gig at the American Composers Orchestra, just the question, okay, why am I applying mm -hmm. for this? You know, mm -hmm. what's, what's actually in it for me, especially if I'm not censoring someone needing to give me a paycheck every, every other week, you know, and I, I came to those questions, the answers to those questions, and, and here I am. But a lot of people ask themselves that question and can't justify even applying for for some of these jobs. You know, there are lots of radio jobs, even more bassoon jobs that I have I would have no desire to even go for, you know, to put myself in the pool for. Sure. And there's a reason for that. And that has to really be acknowledged. That question has to really, really, really be engaged if we're going to push this conversation uh, to the next level. I'm going to repeat myself. A lot of the attention, especially in opera that's being paid to this issue, is due to the Black Opera Alliance. There are so many people that see that group as uh, troublemakers, rabble rousers, X, Y, and Z, but there are conversations that are being had that weren't being had in organizations like Opera America that's really rolling up their sleeves and put it, putting out the material. Here it is. Here's, here are the, the square numbers. We are not diverse. 
What are we going to do about it? Are we comfortable with that? In 2022 America, most of these opera companies are run almost exclusively by white folks. What does that even mean, especially in parts of the country like down in Atlanta, where most people are black? Mm -hmm. In your city, most people are black. How have you managed to have a nearly all white staff? And, and performance crew or or whatever. And I'm just naming them as an example. I, but we're going to talk about grace, <laughs> offering grace in the fourth movement. But there's only so much, especially when the issue is repeated and repeated and repeated. So to all the opera companies out there, you can do something about this or not. Those are the choices. We can move forward or we can move backwards. That's just it. I'm going to say this last thing, though, as we transition. A lot of my dissonance, especially in working uh, with the Black Opera Alliance, has been the desire to want to even be a part of these organizations. If it were up to me, there would be way more people divesting from some of these structures because it's obviously they don't want us there anyway, based on these numbers. So why don't we focus on building our own and, and creating spaces where we're actually wanted and where we're actually mm -hmm. appreciated at the same time? As someone who's rooting for everybody black, who's rooting for everybody black, if there are black folks who want to go sing at the Met and want to go sing at La Scala, I affirm their right to go do that. So that's how I justify the work. I'm mentioning all of that because we're going to transition with a little <laughs> excerpt from a speech by Malcolm X. I cannot wait to go see this Malcolm X opera by uh, Anthony Davis. I hope to go over and see it at the Met in uh, New York to see, you know, the look on some of their faces some of these longtime patrons who were alive and hating on malcolm x when he was around mm. you know that has to exist to an extent anyway oh, yeah. um malcolm x speaks to uh this 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 issue of you know aspiring to these spaces and his thoughts on it so i'll, I'll just let him speak for himself as we transition into this second movement he himself set up if the black man has 20 billion dollars and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up. They should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind, make, up, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. Mm -mm. See, I feel like people don't hear what he said. People do not hear what he said. When he was listing off all of these bourgeoisie organizations and infrastructures, how can we not think about opera? At the end of that, when he's talking about if you know who you are, again, talk about preserving history and, 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 and knowing our legacy. He said, when you learn to appreciate yourself, you won't be trying to force your way into uh, their bedroom and their factories and their opera companies. Anyway, I hope some of that makes it into this Malcolm X opera. I hope there's some fire and, and, and hot sauce on this piece of music because 
we have to have these conversations. We can't, we have to stop all of this soft shoeing because the data is is unacceptable. That is just unacceptable. In what industry would it be acceptable for that to be the case other than classical music? We have we 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 have to stop being nice about this. And if if the doors are going to remain shut, if there aren't going to be the equitable initiatives that intentionally diversify these spaces, damn the hiring practices, damn what the union says, it's time for us to just do our own thing and be done. Have like you ever, Malcolm X said. Have you ever written a libretto? I've never written a libretto. No. We could it, we we could turn one of uh, these opuses a triloquy. Triloquy could be an opera. Listen oh, to me. You know? <laughs> Somebody's gonna do the podcast opera and it's gonna piss me off that they didn't call me <laughs> to play the lead role. <laughs> you know, we've 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 had all sorts of types of operas. The podcast opera is coming. And and you wanna play yourself? <laughs> well, they can write they can write a character That's for meta. me. Or or maybe I don't I don't know. Anyway. If 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 why do you ask me about writing a libretto? You say I I need to get to work now. No, you said that, <laughs> you said that you hoped that the, 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 what was the story that you were just talking about? You hope was going to be made into something. I just figured, you know. Oh, I'm no, I'm I'm saying that when we, most of us think about Malcolm X, we think about some of those fiery speeches and and fiery statements. So write the libretto I hope, for the. I hope Anthony Davis included some of that. I'm oh, sure got he you. did. I, I thought I'm you were sure something did. new. Okay, well. But you telling me There's, to get to work. Look, 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 look at us always having to be the ones working. How about you write the libretto? How about you get to work? Uh, all right. <laughs> We're here in the second movement. We're Scott and I got to highlight nice some music that we have been spending some time with all week. So we were talking about dance music. Uh, at the beginning of this opus. So uh, Dell and myself were invited to um, a dance party uh, hosted by a collective, a femme collective here in the Twin Cities called Clituation. All kinds of musical styles. Maria Issa is a part of it. Enjoyed seeing her uh, (laughs) on stage. Um, But it was very young up in there. But even though it was young, I was excited to see that, you know, some of this older dance music the kids knew. And I feel like with the internet, YouTube, and all of this stuff, they are more set up to know, again, going back to this idea of preserving history, of knowing some of this dance music, this club music yeah. that came before them because they just have more uh, easy access to it than I did, than certainly than uh, you did when certainly. talking about uh, music that came generations before. Anyway, in this dance party, a recurring artist uh, on you know on the screens and and on the turntables was uh, Janelle Monae. So she was on my mind Saturday night. Uh, fast forward to the next day, we're watching the BET Awards here, and Janelle Monae uh, presents one of the first awards. And first of all, shouts out all the gays, which is. Uh, <laughs> You know, not I won't say unprecedented on BET, but definitely a change from what mm. I grew up with on, mm. on that network. No shade, but shade. Yeah. Not only did Janelle Monet very intentionally speak up and speak out for the queer community, she gave the Supreme Court a very solid fuck you. I mean, they had to bleep it live and everything. So between the dance party where, where Janelle Monet is, you know, a, a leading figure musically and artistically, and then getting to hear from her on the BET Awards uh, last night, she's been on my mind. So I returned to the music of Janelle Monet, and I discovered for myself a tune that I had not heard of hers. It's called Babot Baya, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Babot Baya. It's a fully orchestrated symphonic 
masterpiece. It, it blows my mind that I had never actually gotten to it any kind of way. It's almost rhapsodic. The track is about eight minutes long and it goes through so many different moods and feels uh, beginning with just this really beautiful layout of the fact that we're here in the orchestra and I'm Janelle Monet, and I have a composition for y'all. Now, unfortunately, that percussion sounds digital to me. It doesn't sound like a, a, a acoustic timpani. I'll say. What what makes what tips you off? I think it's the way that the reverb happens, but you still get the idea. We're we're listening to orchestral music. There's there's no denying that. You don't think everything's lining up a little bit too perfectly? Maybe that's what your ear takes you to. I'm going to the timbre. Of the instruments, but but like right. I said, mm -hmm. that doesn't take away from how brilliant this is. The only love my heart approaches, your tender eyes sell mine with roses. I drink your wine, and never will my heart try inside. So maybe a little bit of the of the jazz club vibe there. I'm the, feeling a speakeasy. Yeah, yeah, it's really beautiful. But, you know, she goes into many, many other vibes as well. One, one of my favorite parts uh, of, of this piece of music, Janelle gets into, you know, that low brass. And when you hear the low brass articulate like this, you know something is coming. I hear echoes of your laughter in the corners of my mind while I memorize each detail design. In your hair there is a symphony, your lips a string quartet. They tell stories of a neon down the street when we first met. Now somewhere time... And, I, and I'm not even familiar enough with the track to really quote the lyrics, but it sounds like your hair is a symphony, your lips a string quartet. So she's even in the lyrics playing on this idea of symphonic music. It just I haven't been this excited to learn about a new to me piece of music in a long time. There are um, I did find one live performance of it. I think it was the Emory uh, Orchestra performing with Janelle Monet. But like I was saying, maybe last week or the week before last uh, about the Kendrick Lamar, mm -hmm. the music is ready for the symphonic stage. It it doesn't really even need arranging and it, it may need transcribing to a degree. So we have to do that for the orchestra. But as far as orchestras engaging audiences in new ways, we have the content. We have the material. There is no reason why we aren't playing this. I mean, there, there's no reason why we shouldn't be sharing this with with our communities. Maybe, you know, Janelle Monet is very tight with the with the scores and the music or well, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. But just discovering for me, this music was was really, really, really special. What was your knowledge of her music before you found this piece? I mean, I felt like I was Fairly familiar with the dance music, some of the uh, R&B stuff that she has done. This album came out in uh, uh, 2010. The The album is called The Arc Android. So I, guess I hadn't I, heard of that. Yeah. But. I guess I'm asking, is, is this a departure for her? Does this stand out from the rest of her catalog? I, I guess that's yeah. I guess that's why I was so excited to find it because it it fits perfectly and it makes perfect sense for her based mm. on the different types of uh, music she's put out. I've just never heard it fleshed out 
so blatantly orchestrally in, mm-hmm. in, in this way. Here, here's, here's a little bit of the, the end, and, and I'll be done gabbing about it. It reminds me of the um, the Paviel concert, the Paviel French concert mm. I, I went to a couple of weeks ago. Man, if we could just only get over ourselves and and put this on the stage, we have all of the ingredients. We have the flutes and violins and, and low brass that you heard in that recording. We have, even if not Janelle Monet there herself, the artists in local communities who can sing that solo line. We can think of it as a soul concerto or however the orchestras want to categorize it. We have it. We have what we need to engage broader audiences and even to engage broader audiences in a way that a lot of the most traditional Additional of these musicians and and gatekeepers can stomach. You know, we we it's not like it's somebody in in this piece of music actually doing turntable stuff and all of that stuff. It's it's mm-hmm. orchestral music. Let's let's get into it. Let's get into it before it's too late. There in the end, I do have to say that if that was MIDI, it was really convincing. Well, I I, I hope I'm not offending whoever was in that original recording session, but I can't wait <laughs> to see a video or hear uh, an HD live uh, performance so- of Bob. So you know that that was you are really stuck on that. Why are, I'm, why are you so I'm just concerned? Wanna, I just want to I just want to make sure <laughs> that we aren't bagging on a live band being tight when we think it's digital. I don't That's think. All. See, it's not the rhythm for me that like or listen. We, we are grown in, in orchestras. We can play perfectly together as you hear on a computer. I'm listening to the timbre of, of the instruments, and that's what's making me think. If y'all know better, reach out and let me know. But to me, it, it sounded like computer instruments. I think it came across very well. It was very convincing. I can't wait to hear it played by a whole black orchestra. That's all I'm saying. Okay. What you got? <laughs> uh, I want to shout out an English composer by the name of Angela Morley. Um, worked a lot in what you might call light music, or dare I say, dance music. Um, hmm. You know, more like the uh, like the sort of uh, uh, debutante ball sort of mm-hmm. uh, background orchestra. You know that. Uh, you know when you when you say light British music. A certain sound comes Me- to meadows mind. Meadows and butterflies. Sure. And- um, you know, the sort of film, the, the sort of uh, music that they use in the background of uh, educational films. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, and well, be careful, Billy, because, you know, when you went the first time, you go, you know, some stereotypical thing like that. Sure, sure. But in the United States, she worked a lot in film and television, and I have to tell you that one of my happiest moments, I didn't have a whole lot of happy moments in the last week, <laughs> but one of the happiest was when I started listening to the theme from the television show, Dallas, because she wrote that.
also wrote the theme song for the show that came on after it, Falcon's Crest. She wrote that. She also orchestrated that one epic scene in Star Wars Episode Four where they go down in the trench to try to uh, destroy the Death Star. She orchestrated that whole series. She did Watership Down, the music for The Little Prince, all this sort of thing. And I wanted to bring her in because in 1972, she transitioned and lived as uh, openly as a, as a transgender woman until her death in 2009. And when you listen to old interviews with her, nobody dead names her. Nobody says he and then corrects themselves. No, none of that. It's all she, all very respectful. And I don't understand why we can't just do that now. They were doing it in the 70s for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. Why can't we do it now? And I'm not going to dead name her because it's Angela Morley. And uh, I did go and I, fi- and I found some of her quote unquote serious or uh, i.e. chamber music. And one of them really spoke to me called Harlequin for clarinet and strings. And there's still elements of the light feel to it. But still, but it's it's melded with the um, the the mellowness of a of a chamber group, I guess, um, and still some really virtuosic lines for the clarinet too that I love. It's always a pleasure to, I'm thinking about that clarinet player, it's always a, a pleasure to play music that has some personality and music that you can add your own smile to or your, you know, your own anger or, or whatever. Really, 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 really incredible. We, we're always talking about, you know, creating these lists, mm-hmm. you know, the, the women composers, the trans composers and all that. You know, one, one, of, one of my weak points, one of my, one of my dark spots are the gender marginalized composers, you know, especially trans and non-binary composers. So Angela Morley is on, on my list now. So yeah. I, can, I can be sure to uh, integrate more of her music into, um, you know, the things that I put together. And, you know, hopefully you can, you know, take the opportunity if Andrea Morley's music comes across one of your playlists to really affirm, you know, the womanhood of trans women or, or however you want to be an ally in that moment. That's a that's a, a, a great opportunity to do that. One of the one of the I guess you could say dance pieces that she wrote was uh, that does come across my playlist every once in a while. It's called Rotten Row and it's not rotten at all. It's actually sort of uh, a little green space in a rather affluent area of mm-hmm. London, as I recall. So, and it even sounds English. Like there's something about you know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there was like a specific camera filter, especially in the early '90s, where you could just tell a, uh, a television show is British. You <laughs> no, know, I think like it's a, the cloud cover. A haze, you know, a haze <laughs> over this, and the same haze over all of these shows. I kind of hear a version of that in a lot of uh, British music. Mm. You know, even if we want to go back to. I'm forgetting the the guy's name right now. Oh, Malcolm Arnold. 
That's oh, the name sure. I was trying to think of. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you think about that aesthetic or even some Benjamin Britten and, and all of that stuff, it, it just kind of has that sort of, you know, aural English haze over it. I, I definitely hear that in, in this music by Angela Morley. One of the interviews that I heard her do, um, she described a situation a lot like what we talked about a few episodes ago with Nile Rodgers. Uh, no, that would have been the end of last season, but we talked about Nile Rodgers going into the studio and having to find what the it of the song was, find the the hook and mm-hmm. do it quickly. She did that in the orchestral world. Yeah, They would have you know something that they were going to do for film or television or whatever the case was, and they'd, they'd have a window of a day or maybe just hours and have to come up with jaunty little orchestral bits like what you just heard yeah and among among those folks are you know trans women gender marginalized folks so you know shout out to angela morley happy pride to mm. everyone my, my queer sound there the natural uh hope y'all go check out some more of uh her music all right well we're getting into the third movement this week's guests are janita norpoth and curtis stewart from Publi quartet they have a new album out called what is american and it really you know, critiques the idea of American classical music as it has existed and puts a different flip on it. They do uh, what getting into the interview, we're going to hear a little bit from uh, their improvisations on a string quartet by Dvorak, the so-called American quartet. You know, it was called something else originally. We've covered that on this podcast before. But (laughs) so, you know, they they're doing that. They're digging into just other aesthetics uh, that are uniquely American. There's, uh, again, a lot of improvisation on the album. So it was just really, really a joy for uh, me to sit down with Janina and Curtis to unpack this. The Public Quartet has, you know, for a long time been at the head of really uh, thinking about something new and different for string quartets. The first time I heard them was way back when uh, at a Sphinx conference, they were playing a piece of music uh, that dealt with the work of Nikolai Tesla. And the way that the music works, it's almost like you could hear the different electricities going up wires or whatever uh, a laboratory mm. by Tesla would have looked like. I felt like I heard it, you know. So mm. they they they've long been, you know, just really revolutionizing um, uh, the string quartet space. And this album, What Is American, is definitely um, an example of that. Uh, I couldn't talk to Curtis though without bringing up. The drama that he was facing back in the Grammys when he was nominated and folks, you know, one of our favorite uh, journalists, you know, saying that, oh, this isn't really classical. So I had to ask him a little bit about what that was like. And, you know, also Janina, what's it like to support a colleague in the middle of that sort of media storm? So that's where we'll jump into this conversation and transition uh, with the final movement of Dvorak's uh, American String Quartet, their improvisations on it. So Here's a little bit of that. Hope y'all enjoyed this conversation between uh, myself, Janita Norpoth, and Curtis Stewart from the Publi Quartet. been thinking about is just what how to how my my work the next thing i do is a response to those critiques how i can respond with music instead of words um i think the biggest thing for me was just that 
those articles didn't really attempt to give me a voice. Hmm. I think that's the biggest thing because the argument is fine. The idea that, you know, the argument's fine. I mean, every genre has its argument of what is that, what, you know, you can sure. be, you can be in a bar and be like, that's rock music. No, that's all whatever. And this, that's, that it's, it's kind of fun. It can be fun, but when there's no, nobody representing the other side of the voice and nobody, nobody's, trying to highlight why it should be there or as you were saying where should it fit or you know that's when it becomes a little like what are you doing exactly mm -hmm. janina what does it look like to support your colleagues behind the scenes in the midst of media storms like that oh man you have to ask curtis about this. <laughs> oh, they were great they were so Supportive. yeah they were wonderful uh, like i i guess the biggest thing is just providing a voice of sanity that the bottom line is just like if somebody doesn't get what you're doing just fuck them like mm -hmm. you know like the you know when do you indulge the loudest complainer in the room and when do you just move on and you know do your own thing and th there's so many m more people that appreciate i think what you're doing curtis and you know absolutely want to see it and support it and you know i think that was true in your performance at the grammys and you know how like just people were so ready to see exactly <laughs> exactly what you did but it, like it was definitely it was so frustrating for exactly that reason in that you know these the people who were complaining the loudest, A, like, who has heard of them? Who's heard of these people? Who made them the authority of who can say what and what and what isn't classical music? And, and the fact that they were, you know, accusing, if you looked at every other person in the classical right. category of the Grammys, mm -hmm. it is very much traditional. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Outside of like Jennifer Coe, you know, who made an amazing album and, you know, won the Grammy, she's, you know, yeah, and she's the best. Yeah, yeah. Pushing yeah. pushing boundaries, but somehow, you know, because it was classical living composers through composed things that, you know, was acceptable, I guess. Um, but it was all, you know, so it, it the argument that, you know, the Grammys has lost respectability, or like, you know, if I could see if everybody in the category was like unrecognizably from unrecognizable from what we are used to hearing, but it wasn't that way. And it it was representation of you know all the capabilities that this instrument can do i don't think curtis's album would have actually fit into any grammy category perfectly mm. you know and i think that just speaks to the creativity that is curtis um but i think that's also a big problem in our field is that we are so attached to rules and traditions that it, we don't allow for creativity to happen mm -hmm. and how are people going to move forward and advance what our field is capable of and speak to a generation of listeners who are craving to know more music if we limit what what their influences can be so you know i think that's just you know that's that's a that's a bigger question for the people who were um who took offense <laughs> yeah <laughs> and 
And what is classical? You know, while that is a, a really big question, in your latest album, you ask a different question. What is America? I, I wonder if you can talk about how this album, this project was conceived from, from those seedling stages. Was that a question that you asked each other in a rehearsal one day or, or what's the story behind it? Well, really, it was our love for Dvorak that started the whole thing. So, we, you know, we were in residence at the Met Museum in, from 2016 to 17. Lamore Tomer just challenged us to be even more present and and more programmatically dare, daring than we've ever been before. One of the seven concerts we did that year had to do with American music. And so we were like, what are we going to do for that one? What if we rework the Dvorak Quartet? Okay. And so we each took a movement or something like that. I think maybe Nick did too. And we just <laughs> reworked each movement. Um and then we did some research and based on the title of the piece, actually, do you know that the, the, the original title on the manuscript? Yeah, the nigger quartet, right? That's right. <laughs> Crossed out. So, I mean, you, everybody, anybody can feel whatever they want to feel about that, which is valid. But that was actually, that wasn't his title. Right. That right. was what an, an editor who printed it gave it that title, which was actually based, I think, on a review that the reviewers gave it that title. So I just, just that historical correction, I think is super in, That's important. I didn't know that. So who, the, who, do you know who got, how did it get, anyway, I'm interested in how that got published. I mean, the, the, the story that I, that I always tell, you know, basically in, in the context of Western classical music is that a lot of the pieces that come with nicknames have nicknames that didn't necessarily come from their composers. So, mm -hmm. you know, the big example I offer is that the Moonlight Sonata is not something that Beethoven came up with. That was something external. But what I think is more important uh, to note when it comes to the Dvorak is that someone at some point heard blackness in this music as mm -hmm. Dvorak intended. Um, right. And 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 considering that, you know, I'm uh, I'm always thinking that we have to go in another direction with this nickname, the Afro American Quartet, or something that shines a light on that black origin. Have have those conversations happened? It is on this album as the American Quartet still, after all. Well, now it, it's yes, it's it's mind the gap. What is American improvisations on Dvorak's Quartet number, whatever opus, blah blah blah. That's what okay. it is. Gotcha. Um, and. Uh, Yes, I mean that. I'm now I'm speechless because I didn't know that someone else put a name. <laughs> on that. So I'm I'm a little fucked up right now. But <laughs> my th all right, this was my understanding, and now I, I can answer towards my understanding, which was that, um, you know, yeah, Dvorak loved the music that was coming from these these people he was hearing, and so he was like, "This is this is their quartet, you know, and this is the what do we call these people?" Boom. That's what that's what I was think. That's what I thought it was, and so while that would be you know, that's not good, but it's also like, it's more like, you know, he's just trying to attribute a name to a thing, but now I'm just messed up because of the, <laughs> damn, that's somebody <laughs> I call it that, fuck. <laughs> uh, and, and I think what we have to consider is that there's some, there was some intentionality behind the circumstances that led to most people not knowing that or, or not understanding that and I, so I, I really appreciate this making an appearance uh on on the album can you janina can you go back to playing the regular old version i mean it, it seems like once you see the light you can't unsee the light in, in that sense <laughs> i mean i've taught the regular old version and i i keep actually it did i played the regular old version for sphinx during the pandemic this just the fourth movement um 
we did a smaller, I was in a group that was sort of a small iteration of Sphinx Virtuosi, which is a, a quintet. And, and that was the closer was, and it was, it was very weird to go back to the original version, but I mean, the sort of, you know, the, the reason why we're able to improvise through it, you know, the way that we do is because all of those melodies are rooted in spirituals and right. rock folk music. And that, you know, that lineage, that music, you know, that's, that, that's the root of just so many American genres from gospel to blues to ragtime to R&B to rock and roll. Just it's all coming to Copeland, out. Yeah. To Bernstein. <laughs> to Copeland, to Bernstein, to, to everything. Adams, to Glass. Everybody. Yeah. Sorry, Junior. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, well, I don't know where the Copeland and the Do we do some those improvisations in the Dwarfshack? I don't know. No, what I'm saying is that American music yeah. is is based in the blues. That's it. Period. American Absolutely. classical music, American anything music is based in the blues, which it's is based in the blues. It. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the language. And you know, that's it I it's so interesting. There's so much to unpack even just in in there and how that that music just speaks to all parts of American history, um all parts of joy and pain and everything in between. But um, but yeah, th thus came out our improvisations out of that. And, um, you know, the title really actually came in. It was a meeting with the Met. And, you know, we were thinking about playing. We had gone through, done these tours, thinking about going through all these different galleries. And, um, and you know, with, I was thinking about the American wing. Mm. And there's just so much art that's, you know, kind of very traditional representing like the civil war and, you know, the declaration of independence and the sort of like whitewashed American history that we accept. And um, so I, in my head, I was just thinking about like how that for me, doesn't represent me. <laughs> mm -hmm. That doesn't represent right. like my upbringing and, um, and my understanding of American history. And, and so a little bit, that's where, you know, we were thinking brainstorming titles that's like where what is american came from was just like my um my thought process that was happening and and um you know and then the the people in the meeting liked it and and then it, from there it's just grown you know it, it's such a great title to program things around and i think you know this is like one iteration of um how to musically answer that question and and statement um, I hope there'll be more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also really drawn to the album cover. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of that $20 bill that we haven't gotten yet. They promised right. us That's Harriet Tubman on the bill, but we haven't That's gotten it yet. Did, exactly. So, so, so it sounds like that had played a role in That's in definitely the album part cover. of it. Well, you know, well, hmm. This is, yeah, well, the, so we got there are many there are layers to this. I'm trying to figure out like how do how okay. uh, <laughs> there were many iterations of that cover. <laughs> and one iteration was the same thing torn back with Ben Franklin's eye like peeping through. And we immediately were like, no, no, <laughs> no. And then Janina had to say, well, it would be cool if it was like Harry Tubman peeping through. And then we, we, it was just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much how that happened. And then we saw, you know, and then it, the layers of meaning in terms of the $20 bill that, that affected the font that affected where we were putting it. We were thinking about putting a bunch of stuff on the back that would 
go even deeper into that concept of capitalism. Um, that's another thing. I mean, that's that's a certain thing that I I was going to refer to in terms of genre and what is classical. You know that classical is an expression of capitalism. <laughs> Rap is an expression of capitalism. Jazz is an expression of classical. Those genres are just ways buckets so that people know how to make money more money on people going to certain places that's it and so also just to jump back to the question it would behoove classical music to figure out how to define their bucket a little more um lucratively lucratively i would i would you know it's just you know just putting that out there if we're, if we're going to be talking we're so worried about what classical music is you might think about how to how to operate in this this capitalist world we're actually in um <clears throat> i i hope i catch you at a conference, and I hope that we go to the bar and talk about that specifically. Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely Let's have that. some we, capitalism I'll, I'll ideas. Stop. <laughs> I'll stop. But but, 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 um, to, yeah. but to back up a little bit, Janina, why did or why or how did Harriet Tubman just pop into your mind as an alternative so quickly? Um, well, you know, interestingly enough, I think I had just gone to the African American Museum in in DC. Mm. Um, I spent like about a, a whole day on like a floor and a half. And one of the most striking things was this hymn book that was Harriet Tubman's that she kept with her all the time. And the pages were worn in certain places, which you could see that there were certain hymns that she'd gone back to continually. So mm. I had that, it was a really powerful image to me. It connected a with, you know, sort of this, this idea of Dvorak and the spiritual and all of the music that we chose to put on that album is, it's, you know, connected to that in some way, that lineage of all the different genres that has, you know, been a foundation um, of American folk music. And um, and then, of course, the $20 bill that we, we never got, you know, and it's interesting to me that peeling back of the layers to see something that we should see that should, and the, and, you know, the, the question of like, you know, who gets to hold the symbolism in American culture, who mm. gets to be on the monuments, who gets to be on the money, who gets to be in these positions of power and how, um, you know, and, and how impactful it is when we actually do see people in those places. We see women, we see people of color. It, it's, it's incredibly impactful. And, you know, it, it changes a lot. I think actually, because it just changes how people see themselves mm. and, and it empowers people. Um, and, you know, I think that's, it seems silly, but it's actually extremely powerful. So. Yep. And, and I, and I, and I really appreciate, you know, this being one of the pieces that's sort of toyed with and, and played with, because we can talk about new music all day. I also believe in, uh, dismantling the respectability that comes with some of these, you know, so-called canonic pieces of music. With mm. that spirit of improvisation, though, I can't help but to chase the rabbit off the trail in my mind of recorded improvisation as a thing versus hearing something that, you know, you'll never quite hear in that way again when we talk mm -hmm. about live improvisation. Curtis, I wonder what your ideas are on that improvisation versus recorded improvisation. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> I try to be brief. I'll try not to go off on a non-sequitur, not non-sequitur, a, a sequitur um, <laughs> this time. Um, well, first of all, I think the second anything hits a recording, it becomes a composition. Okay. So, like, if I'm recording something, I'm hitting, it hits that mic, it, that it is it can potentially be a composition the second you hit edit it is now a composition you know the second so that's how i see that 
um, to record. I mean, the, our improvisations in that Dvorak are, it's not like we're breaking the mold every single time we play that piece. Just like Charlie Parker wasn't breaking his mold every time he was improvising on, you know, now's the time. You know, he was exploring his language. He was exploring the work he'd built on. He was talking through it. And I think we're, we're talking through the piece every time. And so this recording of this, that's actually a problem that we encountered when we were trying to figure out the edits because mm. there'd be five versions. It was like, oh, this, all five of those are cool, but there'd be seven others where we'd be like, eh, no, but you know, there's, there were five that we were like, those would be cool to use. And we just had to make a choice. So it's all of a sudden a composition. You know what I mean? So I, I see, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I'm not sure that's the question. Definitely. Maybe, maybe public quartet can come out with the deluxe version of the that's album right. like everyone else does. And we'll hear the, right. the, the other takes and the, we'll and the other cuts. Different. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna um, we're gonna phase out of this uh, interview with uh, Black Coffee that's on the album, and I'll ask you a little bit uh, about that uh, here in a few minutes. But when it comes to just the rest of the album, these original works, what is the process? I can't imagine writing a piece of music A, but writing a piece of music in conjunction with other people that seems like it adds a level of difficulty, a level of complication, if I may use that word. You know, I think we function very much like a band and how that works. And it's usually one person coming in with an idea for something and then everybody adding their part and adding ideas and sharing ideas. And, um, you know, it, in my experience, like when I've come in with something, it, it usually it's so incredible to have um, to be surrounded by so much creativity, you know, like that's often the hardest thing as as a composer as a creator to get started with something and get started with an idea and so often you like run into blocks or ideas and so if you are able to bring it to like three other creators that then just give you endless amounts of information that you can go back and choose from and be inspired by and come up with something it's 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 awesome. And oftentimes it's like you come up with something that's just way cooler than anything you would have come up with on, on your own. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that. It's like Voltron, you know, it's, we, I was mm. thinking about that today, you know, cause I was like listening to some of the stuff that I've created. I'm like, wow, it's just so different than anything that I've created for quartet. Like, so like, for, I think we each have different processes. Like somebody will bring in a chart and then we'll improvise on it and it'll grow, you know, branches and, you know, um, whereas some people, like, for example, what I'll do is I'll have us improvise on various sections of something and just see, okay. see what comes out and then kind of curate those. So the end thing is actually less improvisational because we're just executing what we had already done. Yeah, sure. Okay. You know and, what I mean? And, and I appreciate the, the Voltron reference, maybe for the folks listening who are a little younger, Power Rangers, maybe it's <laughs> similar. But... Oh, yeah. no, Power Rangers is not quite. Let's see. Uh, yeah, well, that's as good as it's but, but yeah. and, and in addition, you know, I'm, I'm also really intrigued, you know, about all of the vocals on the album. You know, it's in the students I've taught over the years. I mean, getting them to sing is just the hardest thing to do. Your ensemble is fully comfortable with getting up close to the microphone and whispering or doing whatever, you know, you, you, the, the music requires you to. Is there significance um, around your actual voices being on this album and, and not only your playing your instruments being on the album? Well, there's a hymn that comes at the very end of Dvorak 
that it just felt like this needs to be sung somehow. I don't know. Mm. It was just like this needs it's a compositional technique. And I would say actually where I personally am not comfortable singing. I'm not sure how you feel, Gina, but like it's the point is it's almost like ah, like where we've done so much with our instruments that just has to come out this other way. That's more that's that's how I see it. I don't totally. know. What do you yeah? Yeah. No, it's it's you know, it's like at the end of the day, there's like it's all about getting the story across. And sometimes the story just require something that the instrument can't do you know and mm-hmm. and there's just no replacement you know for words sometimes i mean we only we use it only as much as we really have to um right. but and then i think that that like you know that just makes it all the more powerful because it often like will connect people to the music in a in a different way you know even if it's just like hearing the words once and then hearing then played on the instrument and you just you hear the phrasing you hear the harmonies in in a different way i'm thinking specifically of like the get-ins um at the purchaser's option which we Mm -hmm. we did an arrangement of um yeah and then it's funny every everybody thinks that him at the end of the dvorak they they're like who wrote that did did one of you and we're always like that's no that's dvorak that's dvorak (laughs) that's the quartet it's just being sung by you know and it's funny too because it's like you know when you're a student you're there's times where your teacher is like you have to sing this you won't understand this you had to play this until you've sung it and it's a little bit kinetic a little bit like that yeah yeah and i'm one of those teachers for the record like yes you you have if you can't sing this how can you possibly play that but um you know as as we you know start to wrap up here social justice even as realized through music is more than just raising awareness. You know, the point is the justice. The The point isn't the awareness. So with that in mind, and, and maybe even with this album in mind specifically, what do you hope for um, the listeners to be activated toward or to at least think about that might inspire some sort of action toward something? What's the, the broader, the broadest point of the album? Um, well, I think our initial intention with the album was just to to make music that that we love. I just want to just make that sure, of course. Yeah. So, so the 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 point for us is to represent to just play this music that we are super passionate about and that we feel needs to be heard. Um, and I'm hoping for me, I'm sure each one of us in Cortez has a different action item that could be. But for me, mine is that more classical musicians, people who identify as classical. Um, <laughs> uh, Find, find it in themselves to sing their voice, to, to represent themselves, whatever combination of selves they see and find a way to represent that on a stage and bring that. Because if, if we all were to do that, suddenly classical music would be much more representative. Um, so I think that, that that's personally my little, my sticking point. I mean, there's many, there's, there's a lot more in terms of social justice for, for black lives that I, I'm very passionate about, but I think, in the broader spectrum of the broadest thing that could happen is that classical musicians actually decide to be themselves on stage. That's it. That, that would be, that would be. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and Janina, I definitely affirm um, and, and celebrate, you know, creating music that you believe wants to be heard and music that you love to perform at the same time. Unfortunately, I'll say it's inherently political to take a black 
approach to the question of what is America? Mm. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, so similar question. I wonder if you could just expound on that, you know, the, the hoped for impact, maybe for people to broaden their view of America, maybe even broaden their view of string quartet, classical music, as it were. Yeah, I, I mean, all of the above. And I think our deepest hope is that it will inspire conversation that um, that people will think about the album's title as it, how it relates to them, how it relates to their neighbor, how it you know relates to somebody that they don't know, and and delve to be open, more open-minded about what embodies our own individual American experiences and identities, you know, and I think, um, and yes, I, I agree, it's inherently political to make an album. It that shouldn't is, be, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be. And that's, that's the whole thing. I, you know, it's funny, because we got some other, you know, more directed questions in another interview. And it's like, you know, if we were doing Copeland Lincoln Portrait, um, or, you know, if, if we were doing Bernstein West Side Story, it wouldn't feel at all political. But, you know, since we're doing at the purchaser's option, since we're doing, you know, we're doing Fats Waller interpreted, you know, um, through the lens of um, showcasing the life of Madam C.J. Walker mm. with with her her quotes, you know, um, her quotes, which are, are hard hitting. Um, what's that? What's the quote, Curtis? Um, uh, I'm trying to save black men's bodies and white men's souls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm in the business not to oh. help myself, but um, to I should pull up the quote, yeah, but yeah. to save for saving black men's bodies and white men's souls. I mean, that is I, I think some people will hear that quote and feel immediately uncomfortable. And, you know, in the context of there's so much power in that quote, too, because the context of that quote is her. Um, her um, lobbying against and marching for um, anti-lynching legislation, mm -hmm. which we just got more than a hundred years later. Right. So, um, you know, I, I there I think there are um, little breadcrumbs all through the album that are just meant to be food for thought. Um, food to challenge your perception of things you know whether it's the opening of the album that is oliver wendell holmes's um fifth verse which mm -hmm. comes back in several um several different ways that we improvise throughout the album each way is sort of connected to what came um before it but um that particular um that particular poem which he set to the the national anthem he wrote during the civil war and there's this line um for their for the millions of chains unchanged who their birthrights have will gain you know um and and this idea at that point that this country was not free for everyone and um you know and i think there those lyrics are are such a um honest representation i think even even still of of our country's history and acknowledging um so much of our country's history which feels has oppressed many different people and is um 
you know, and, and it, being able to acknowledge that existing in our history, whether it's, you know, for how many years slavery existed or, you know, how many years it's been since the civil rights, how many more years before mm-hmm. civil rights, you know, nobody was equal <laughs> unless you were a white man, you know, and, and how that is impacting our society today, you know, how just because we've changed the laws doesn't mean that our interactions and our, our history books or the people on our money or, you know, there's so much symbolism. And to, to just examine that and think about it shouldn't be anti-patriotic. In fact, it should be right. completely patriotic. Yes. To, you know, learn and move forward and, you know, have a more equitable place for everybody to feel proud of and patriotic for. I, mean, I could. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. That's what democracy is, right? You know, this was supposed to be. The point is supposed <laughs> to be conversation. How can there be an alternative history? How can fact, how can facts be? These are facts. This is what Madam CJ Walker said. There was a poster, you know, advertising that you could buy a woman at and maybe buy her daughter. You know, there was, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote this, this poem. These are just facts. This is not an alternative history. I'm reacting to a pre, uh, one of those. That's why I appreciate your interview questions because they didn't have, <laughs> which is, you know, it's like, this is not an alternative history. This is just, this is the history I was taught as a, yeah. as a young person. That's what my father told me. It's my mom taught, taught me a whole other history about like what happened in communist Poland. You know, there's like a whole, there are histories beyond the ones that the, we are telling. It's not alternative, you know, and uh, it, it, the fact that, the fact that, yes, taking a quote unquote black perspective is, is political. That is the question that this album is asking. What is American to you? Why is it that taking that perspective is political? Why is it that? that is somehow non-American. Why doesn't that enter the, why isn't that part of your conversation on the daily? This, the reason that America is the great, this quote unquote great place. The reason we have the financial um, grounding to be, to, to be a, a, a military superpower, you know, why isn't that part of your thought about what America is? What, where is the shame that, what is the shame that that brings so much so that you can't think on it? Think about Germ- think about the way Germans have reacted to World War II. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about America. What is American? You know, and that, that, that is the question that I think we can sit with on the daily. I think, I mean, I don't see that as a political thing. I just see that as like a, a soul searching. I see it as a, um, uh, patriotic thing as janina was saying because it's like yes this is my country we live here we get the we get the benefits we get the hardships we get everything this is where we are this is our country and for you to just say that our hit a certain vantage point doesn't exist you know when we're just talking about facts and our feeling about that you know is you know anyway 
Just putting that up. I mean, everything that you lay out is why I'm a little challenged by that quote that you mentioned earlier, you know, saving black bodies and saving white souls. I mean, that that maintains certain power dynamics. I'm still the one doing the labor for you, ultimately, Mm -hmm. if that's the approach. I mean, we we, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. But I mean, you could you could like apply that quote to police violence, you know, it's like I said, there are so many parallels, you know, when things were spoken and to, to how we interpret them today, you know, at the same time, this album is also like, it's for me, it's just a, an outpouring of, um, and a reflection of the music that I love, you know, I love Dvorak's American portrait. Part of like the improvisation is like this. uh, I I think there's like, you know, as your girl, I think everybody plays this quartet when they're, little there's like these places where you just like want to go above and beyond what what's written in terms of right. just like wilding out and like mm-hmm. this is like the indulgent way to completely do that you know like i you know vijay's piece like is inspired by james i love james brown like it's just so fun to be able to like play um you know funk all these funk rhythms and drumming and do all of this on on the violin and um Roscoe Mitchell's piece, which um, which he wrote specifically for us, is is actually coming out of like you know my childhood. My my dad, um, I you know, grew up around my dad as a jazz guitarist and composer, Spencer Bearfield, and he had um, a series in Detroit for um, for over a decade that brought in all of these amazing composers. and And Roscoe was his mentor. Roscoe was mm-hmm. his mentor um, from. Uh, from undergraduate school at Michigan State when he was, uh, you know, he was in science and, you know, he was supposed to be a doctor. And I think Roscoe was a big part of him really embracing um, his musical side and and deciding to, you know, um, <laughs> to go there <laughs> instead of to med- medical school. Um, so, um, so being able to um, work with Roscoe and the fact that he wrote this piece for us was, you know, it was incredible. Um, and it fell right into the line of, you know, he wrote it during the pandemic and, you know, it's a, a kind of a modern reflection and it's great for us because it's this, you know, this amazing composer, living composer who also left space for improvisation within, within the piece. And, you know, and then there's, you know, Tina, Tina Turner, Betty Davis, this is like, you know, my heroes. So, I'll, you know, part of it, yes, is, you know, there's this through line, um, that feels um, provocative. And then a lot of it is, you know, like a representation of our own musical tastes. Yeah. And yeah. Things that we wanted to do as a quartet. Well, people will be able to stream this album by the time this conversation comes out, but how else can they engage? Can they check out physical copies anywhere? How can they support beyond just the streaming? Um, you might take this? <laughs> yeah, I think we can I, go for it. You can go to uh, publicquartet.com. You can also go to brightshiningthings.com and order there. It'll be available on Amazon um, and all ways of procuring physical <laughs> items if you care to have, if you have a CD player. Actually, the <laughs> art is pretty cool, though. I mean, you might want to just. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We just opened them up yesterday because we were sending them out. We're sending them to some of our um, donors, our Kickstarter donors. Um, it's pretty cool to, to hold a CD in a hand again. So it's still yeah, it's still I still buy CDs, even though I don't have a CD player. Like and when I want to support an artist, I just like to have it and hold it. 
just yeah. don't try to just don't try to give it to somebody when you're at the cashier, even though you know, even though it should be a, worth a twenty dollar bill. <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> and the CD itself is probably going to be worth a twenty dollar bill. Just don't don't try to use it as a tender. You might get arrested. <laughs> so um, we're, we're I'm going to offer a, a sample uh, to everyone listening uh, of the track Black Coffee. That's the one that I was most drawn to in in listening uh, to the album. I wonder if either of you can offer a little bit of context about that piece of music. Sure. Um, so this is part of um, an improvisation on, on four different songs. And when we play them together, we call it Wild Women. It's because the last song is um, is by Ida Cox, who wrote this um, feminist anthem in the, the 1920s um, called Wild Women Don't Have the Blues. And, um, you know, and, and in the song, she she basically is like, you know, if the man doesn't do what I want him to do. I'm throwing him out. <laughs> and my happiness is, is my own. And, um, you know, that's pretty provocative for 1920. So, um, I was thinking, I, I knew I wanted to bring that particular song to the quartet. Um, and I was thinking about other things that might kind of vibe with that. So the four women that are kind of embodying, um, this piece are, um, or Ida Cox, um, Alice Coltrane, Betty Davis, and, and Tina Turner, who wrote Black Coffee, which um, which we'll listen to. And um, I chose Black Coffee um, because it was the lyrics are very empowering, um, and it's you know it's reflective of embracing her own skin. Um, but it's also one of the few. Um, Tina Turner songs that she actually wrote all of the, the lyrics to herself um, so I, I felt that was pretty powerful as well and, and wanting to include it there performed by the Publi Quartet, a tune made famous by Tina Turner. I really love everything I've heard on this album so far, Scott, even the uh, improvisation on uh, the Dvorak string quartet that we heard to get into the interview. I think that is much more reminiscent of America aesthetically than the original. You know, we take our hats off to Dvorak and what he did and <laughs> helping people over here understand that Black music is the foundation of it, you know, so sh shout out to him. This is even more American, what the Public Quartet has done with this, uh, with that piece of music. And then when you have works like uh, Black Coffee that we just listened to, their arrangement of it, it really, for me, I listen to it, I hear string quartet, and I hear American classical music. I really think it's 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 that simple. Surely, you know, I, I, I saw you bopping your head and getting into the groove of that a little bit. I, 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 I like the, the idea of the preservation of the aesthetic, even through the string quartet. It's important. And we, we have to shout out the, uh, the, the groups like Public Quartet uh, doing that. I didn't mention uh, before we got into the interview, the album cover includes this photo. I'm holding the, uh, the CD right now. It includes a photo 
um, of Harriet Tubman as I guess she was supposed to appear on the $20 bill. Whatever happened to that? Remember I when they heard. Remember when they told us that yep. they were going to put her on the dollar? Hmm. That's very on the dollar. I don't know about or the, the twenty dollar bill. Oh, okay. uh, I thought it was. Huh. Um, but anyway, you know that that that's another thing. So shout out to the uh, public quartet, Janina and Curtis, for uh, joining me. Hope y'all go check out that album. All right, we're gonna talk about a couple things in this final movement, and I want to transition into the final movement with some music from the Star Wars franchise. So, long story short, we finished. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Loved it, by mm-hmm. the way. I, we won't give away any spoilers, but, you know, shout, shout out to the Darth Vader character. I mean, just legendary. Anyway, we, we finished the series, and Del wanted to go back and uh, watch, you know, either episode four or Rogue One. So uh, he ended up going with Rogue One. And there's a character, his name is Chirrut. Uh, 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 he's blind in the in the film. And he does a lot of chanting. He does that, I'm one with the force, the force is one with me. I'm one with the force, the force is one with me. It reminds me of, you know, the rest of the recitation of speaking of Tina Turner, the recitation of Namyo Horenge Kyo, how it's like just this this affirmation that, you know, we can overcome, you know, we 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 can uh, be a change maker. We we can put out positive cause into the world. With everything that was in the news on Friday and over the weekend, I had to put myself in that mode. It's easy to get into just endless sorrow or feelings of hopelessness, but that but that chanting and the way that this character on uh, Rogue One reminded me of that concept really got me through. So let's let's transition into uh, this final movement with a bit of uh, Chirut's theme. Again, music here from Rogue One. there by michael giacchino let let's let let's stick with star wars just for a second these people had a whole galaxy <laughs> to, to try to save and we can see over all of the different movies and films and books and and side pieces of content how what a single person does mm-hmm. how it can be so 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 significant on Friday, everyone knows, I don't have to announce it, the Supreme Court undid Roe v. Wade. I found out because I'm, I'm in here doing my work and uh, one of the um, artist managers was, was in my inbox, you know, we're, we're working on some uh, future guests and she sends me a reply. She's like, oh, thank you for this. I um, hope you have a great rest of your day, you know, all things considered Despite or whatever. Everything. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay. Is it another shooting? What then happened? So I turn on CNN and I see that. I shock isn't even the word. I I didn't. I never considered something like that. Something that could happen or something that would happen, especially considering. And I don't halfway pay attention to m- much of the news anyway. But my understanding is that the past few court justices that got through were very directly asked about Roe v. Wade said one thing and here we are 
in this situation. You mean perjury? It's baffling. It's baffling to me. We can't be hopeless. That's 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 what I got. We we've you know we've already talked about we've talked about multiple times the way that we affirm a woman's right to choose and all of that. At this point, I think the conversation is even bigger. For me, what I'm thinking about is organization. What I'm thinking about is standing in the face of what will ultimately be illegal, but not wrong, not innately wrong, having the courage to do what we can as accomplices for women and gender marginalized people and helping them affirm their rights. It's a really, really, really scary time. It's a really scary time. I know in the first movement you were talking about, you know, when, when are the artists going to be getting locked up or is, is, is that where we're headed? I said what I said in the first movement and I understand where you're coming from mm-hmm. because these things getting undone to see what's happening, to see where the discourse is taking us. It's easy. It's easy to lose that hope, but I'm hanging on to it. I believe that we can all do something in some way, especially those of us with platforms. You know, words are just words at the end of the day, but words impact action. Words impact the way people think. And that's what we got as artists. Many of us have more than the words. We have the music. We have to figure out how to engage this conversation because standing on the sidelines obviously is the wrong thing to do, especially at this point. So many people didn't see this coming. Here we are. We talked about, I don't know if it was after the Buffalo shooting or the Uvalde shooting, you said, what is it going to take for somebody to go into a white private school and start shooting it up, to go into an orchestra hall and start shooting it up? And I said, as as gruesome as it sounds, yes. We're, we're not far away from it affecting you. And, and, and I'm... I'm pointing at the white person across right. the table from me because whenever a group like this gets into power, it's great to be on that side. You know, when, when somebody else is being kicked or put down and you're getting all the bennies, right? But after all the baddies are gone, that group doesn't just stop that behavior. They start looking inward so maybe you're the weakest one of all the tough guys and you got to go your weakness what if you're over 80 and diabetic Mm. what if you have different needs what if you have a family member whose iq is below a certain level i guess what i'm getting at is at some point they could come for you and there will be nobody around to say anything. It's almost like, so one of the conversations that me and Dell had over the weekend, is this how the country feels? And all of the media that I, that I see, social media, what I turn on TV or whatever, there's clear opposition to the Supreme Court and what it has done. The president who put those Supreme Court justices in there didn't elect himself. And, you know, I don't want to be divisive because I don't feel like, you know, in, in, in light of the action that the Supreme Court is taking against its citizens, I believe that we need to have more unity than not. But I would be remiss if I did not make the point 
that statistically most white women voted for Donald Trump. I'm blown away. I'm when and you, you when and you, you, can, and you can look up any article you want to. Yeah, that uncomfortable truth also has to be acknowledged. So, mm-hmm. is it most people that actually feel this way, and we're in our own little so-called woke liberal bubble? I mean, are are we dealing with something that most citizens are against, or are we just in our own little echo chamber? I mean, I, I feel, it's, it's almost question. like being gaslit, yeah, you know. Right, right. And, and, and am I the one? And am, am sure. I in the minority on this issue? But even if I am, even if we are, that that's no reason to to give up. Or or to or to push back. So you know, I'm. I don't want to be divisive. I, I said what I said about the voting. I think it's time for us to figure out a way to to work together. In the season three finale, you talked about grace, offering grace as we engage these conversations on our side of the debate. I hope that people can offer folks who are all on the same team some grace. I see a lot of fracturing of our communities. Uh, because of what folks don't know, namely when it's addressing this issue as not just a women's issue. There are trans men who can get pregnant. There are uh, implications for um, people with disabilities Mm. when it comes to this. Of course, we talk about rape and other violence as it aligns with, with this conversation. There are many nuances about it, and many of us have misstepped and are going to misstep. Let's remember and, and the Hunger Games, you know, one of the recurring themes was remember who the enemy is. And I'm, I, I, as as much of as much as we feel like we're on the brink of something very tragic here in the United States, I'm not ready to talk about enemies and allies in that way. Hmm. What I am ready to talk about is let's get on the same page. The opposition has no problem being on the same page with these issues and doing what they can to create the status quos and the laws and get the people elected to to create these situations. They are on the same page. We have to get on the same page. If you affirm bodily autonomy for women and gender marginalized people, you have to step up. Men have a role to play in this. Women have a role to play in this. There are many nuanced conversations along different identity and demographic lines that we need to have, but we have to be prepared to stand up. We can't lean on the laws or what uh, a body that none of us elected says. We have to stand up. We have to protest. We have to use our platforms to speak out and speak against. We have to stop trying to be neutral and you know, to, to tie this to the arts. I have yet to really see it. Where is the arts institute? And and maybe they exist. Please tag me in something. Please put it in my inbox. Mm-hmm. Where are the arts institutions speaking out plainly and unapologetically and un um what, what, what word I'm unnuanced about it? Where are the orchestras that are saying we stand against the decision of the Supreme Court? Where are the opera houses, the radio stations that mm. are saying that? Mm-hmm. Are they are they saying that or are they agreeing through omission? Are these arts institutions that care about your bodily autonomy and will fight for you as hard as y'all fight for it or not? It's time to get something together. I know these are just words, and I have a lot of thinking to do myself. I'm still in a reactionary mode, but yeah. at the end of the day, I have that hope. You know, speaking back to that hope, I cannot give up. 
And a part of that not giving up is doing everything I can to say what I can in whatever way that I feel like I can say to bring folks together. We have disagreements. There are things that are going to you know, keep us separated, especially with things like racism and the patriarchy and capitalism involved. We have to group up. We have to do what we can to oppose the Supreme Court so that we don't continue to see more rights taken away. We have to recognize the Supreme Court for what it is historically, a body that takes away rights, not gives rights. We have to be unafraid to have the conversations that dip into these political discussions because we see what happens. We see what happens when history is erased. We see what happens when generations long narratives just go away. And we see what happens when a certain somebody gets in a certain position of power and puts other people in positions of power. And here we are. What's next? I don't know. We'll see y'all next week.